Live from the MacGyver Project Studios in sunny, warm Wisconsin, it's Nick with the Outstanding Authors Podcast. My guest today is Eric Kirschbaum, who is a correspondent for Reuters and is based in Germany. His book is Soccer Without Borders, Jürgen Klinsmann, Coaching the U.S. Men's National Soccer Team and the Quest for the World Cup. The book is the story of Jürgen Klinsmann and his attempt to transform U.S. soccer. Klinsmann was a superstar striker for Germany in the 1990s, and he went on to coach the German national team in the 2006 World Cup. In 2011, he became the head coach of the U.S. national team, a position he currently occupies. Klinsmann is a really interesting guy, and this book is a really interesting book, uh, and I'm glad to have read it. So with that, let's give Eric a call. Hello? Hi, Eric. Hi, hi. Hey, this is Nick. Thanks a lot for talking to me. I appreciate it. Sure. Um... So yeah, I just uh, finished your book and really liked it. Um, I'm a big soccer fan, so it was right up my alley. And um, I was curious how you first met Jurgen Klinsmann and the evolution of your relationship. Yeah, um, I uh, was just covering the Germany team in 2004 to 2006 quite a bit, um, press conferences and stuff, and just going to Germany games. And at the press conferences, uh, I just asked a lot of questions, and I think he enjoyed it. I mean, a lot of German journalists are afraid to ask questions at the press conference, and they want to try to talk to the coach one-on-one after. But, um, yeah, so I, the door was open for me to ask questions, so I <laughs> just got to know him that way a little bit. And then that first winter, my mother lived in California, and I asked um, I asked the press folks from the German Soccer Association if I could have an interview with him. He was kind of skeptical, but then he asked Klinsmann, and Klinsmann said right away, yeah, sure, no problem. So I met Klinsmann at a Starbucks there for a couple hours. We had a really good interview in January 2005, and then pretty much every year after that, we had an interview. I was going to visit my mother in California in March or something for a few weeks for Christmas, and then always try to hook up a meeting with Klinsmann, and he was always glad to talk to me in German in California. I don't think he talks a lot of German in California, so whenever we met in California, he would talk in German, and then once in a while we'd meet in Germany, and he would talk in English there, so it's fun, and uh, it was, our conversations were more than just about soccer. I mean, he's he's really an interesting guy. He's always curious and inquisitive and always wants to know more, and he'd always ask a lot of, he'd ask me a lot of questions, too, and um, every once in a while I'd bring one of my kids with me, because I don't know, I was on vacation with him, and he was always glad to meet them and curious about them as well, so I just always found him a really interesting person, and then um, I started asking him maybe 2007 or 2008, hey, Jürgen, there's no books on you in, in English, and uh have any interest in doing a book together, so I was like, no, 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 no thanks, not interested, I don't think he wanted to diss anybody, and he didn't want to criticize anybody in his past, and he just wasn't interested, <clears throat> but I kept asking every year or so. <laughs>
story from Reuters on it, and then, you know, I said one last time, I said, hey, Jürgen, look, um, I'm an American who's lived half my life in Germany, I know the way Germans think, and, and how, how think people take in Germany, and you're a German who's lived half your life in America, so um, who would be better positioned than me to explain to Americans what you're trying to do? And he said, okay, I'll think about it. And then a month or two later, he uh, wrote me an email and said, yeah, the idea is growing on him, and we should talk about it, and then we met in Zurich, and in March um, 2015, they had a friendly against Switzerland and uh, had a really good chat. And yeah, he said, let's do it. And um, so that's how it happened. And then I went to go and find a publisher and that wasn't too hard. And then uh, wrote the book last year. And how would you describe being in his presence? Um, what does he like to talk to? He's just really friendly. He's really easygoing. He's curious. He, he's always looking for a better way. He's got an incredibly open mind. And uh, he's just a likable guy, I think. I mean, um, he gets criticized in America for being direct, but um, like maybe it's because I'm an American who's lived in Germany for so long, but Germans are just kind of direct. If, if you're standing on their foot, they're going to tell you, hey, you're standing on my foot, get <laughs> off. And, and that's just the way they are. And so I totally understand where he's coming from. And um, I think sometimes there's just some, some minor misunderstandings with some of the people in America. They don't really understand um, what he's trying to do and why he's trying to do it. But once you do, and I think some Americans get it, and, and you know, I think of somebody like Bobby White, and I've had some interviews with Bobby White in Germany, he just loves Klinsmann, and Klinsmann has really helped him develop as a player, and just believed in him and talked to him a lot. And I think people who get it, what Klinsmann's trying to do, just benefit so much from his knowledge and wisdom and enthusiasm and things. And uh, he's, just, he's just fun to listen to. I mean, he's just full of ideas. And... Unlike so many other athletes and coaches and players I've talked to, he's really open and honest. If you ask him a question, he'll give you a pretty straightforward answer. He's not, you know, like thinking strategically, what should I say and not say. He's just really open and honest. And um, that's probably another reason why he gets some criticism sometimes in America. He's just so honest. He exposes himself so much to criticism. But as a journalist, I think it's a, it's it's great to have somebody who'll, who'll just, you know, offer his insights and his views on things. In the first part of your book, you talked about his upbringing, and one thing that stood out to me was his father seemed like a really good influence on him in the sense that he was really supportive and went to all of his games, but wasn't really um, judgmental or critical. He wasn't what you'd think of as a typical like sports parent um, who's kind of really super involved and, and, and kind of detrimental. Like He really was just supportive, and I was just curious if you had any other insights on either his family, like if you've met them or... Um, his, his background there? No, I mean, I, I met his, his wife once or twice and his, his daughter and his son, but yeah. um, he's pretty private. He, <clears throat> it's one of the things he tries to keep his private life private, and he talks a bit about his father because his father did influence him, but um, as he says himself, and I think it's his belief that players, if they want to be really good, it's got to come from, it's got to be their own burning desire. Yeah. With soccer players, they just practice in other countries and around the world, they practice on their own so much. And to have that burning desire to be really good and get better, it's got to come from yourself. You can't have a parent pushing you to the next level. you got to want it yourself. And um, that's just the way soccer is globally played, that it's it's the burning desire from the player. And and I think he really appreciated that his father supported that. I mean, I think his father wanted him to go to gymnastics or, or handball or something, but then he found soccer and fell in love with soccer, and his father supported that. And his father would go to every game and bring the pretzels for the rest of the players and just had a really good time just watching him play and really enjoyed watching him play and 
and supported him. And it's really interesting too. I think uh, uh, Jurgen goes to see as many of his son's games as possible as well. His son plays um, goalkeeper in um, California, uh, Berkeley. And I think his I think his I think Jurgen does go to a lot of games, and it's, it's really interesting just the way his father was and. Um, yeah, his daughter played soccer too, and he's always go to those games as well. And, and so he, that's why I think the U.S. is so lucky to have a coach like him. He's not just a quote unquote foreign coach who comes in and tries to change anything. He knows the way soccer is run in the U.S. He understands it from the grassroots level, the, from the youth level, and he and he and he sees so many things that can and should be improved if the U.S. wants to get up to the same level as the rest of the world. And uh, yeah, I think I think the U.S. is really lucky to have a coach like that who understands both the American system, but also has the, the background and knowledge of, of the way the game is played in other countries. And you mentioned that he believes it's the player, it's up to the player, the kid, to be the, the, the driven one. And um, I thought it was interesting that in Germany and in other, uh, other parts of Europe, it seems like the structure is really well organized in the sense that there's always another level to aspire to. And he was talking about the, always getting to the next level um, and so it, for someone who's very driven, it seems like it would make goal setting pretty easy and straightforward. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of system he's hoping to get <clears throat> introduced into the U.S. Yeah. There's this pyramid that is a, is a clear way for, for people, young people, to see, okay, how can I get to the next level? How can I become a professional player? How can I maybe play for the U.S. Uh, national team? How can I get to a top club in Europe? And and in 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 many European countries or in South America, there's this clear pyramid in Mexico too, but in the United States, <clears throat> it wasn't really a clear cut pyramid. And that's one of the reasons <clears throat> a player like Giuseppe Rossi went to Italy. And, and Rossi's even said in interviews, there was just no pyramid in America. There's no clear structure. And, mm. and, a, and a talented young player in America can get lost in this, in this system of high school, college or clubs or whatever. And, um, that's the way it was maybe five or ten years ago, but it's definitely getting better in America. There's more of a structure coming in. It's happening quickly, and um, he's all he's all for that. He wants the structure to be improved. And one thing about Clemson that's really interesting in this book, just the way he would talk about college soccer, he didn't see college soccer as a, as a rival or a competitor or a detractor from an improved U.S. national team. He said that could be integrated into the whole system, mm-hmm. that if the, if the college soccer season could be extended to, to more of a longer season and not just a three-month season, that the college soccer could be a real excellent feeder system to the pros and national team the way basketball and uh, American football are for the NFL and the NBA. <clears throat> so he has some really good ideas. He's thought long and hard about these things, and um, he doesn't have a magic wand. He can't change anything, but I think he's slowly but surely trying to change some of these things and getting people at least to think about doing things better and it's working. I mean, that's one thing I, I was always found so magical about him is the way he brought so many American ideas to Germany when he was a Germany coach from 2004 to 2006. And he got criticized and bashed in Germany for bringing American fitness trainers over from athlete performance. And the German media couldn't believe that they could, that the German soccer elite could learn anything from America, but Klinsmann proved them wrong. And he helped turn, turn a really weak and dysfunctional Germany team in 2004 into a, into a team that uh, got to the semifinals of the World Cup in 2006, and I mean, he's still considered a hero in Germany for the way he turned things around. And the way that Germany plays today, this really attacking, exciting offensive style, has Klinsmann's handwriting all over it. And pretty much every player and coach from that era gives him 
given his due credit for helping make Germany a world power again. Um, so he, he's got a plan, he's got ideas, and he does rub some people the wrong way, definitely. Um, but he keeps, he just keeps, he sticks to it. He's got his beliefs, and he's not gonna, he's not gonna um, cave in and, and just try to please somebody by doing something he doesn't believe in. Yeah, actually, on that note, I was curious how he he handles criticism if it bothers him. Because yeah, it seems like he has made a lot of en- enemies um, initially in Germany after taking over the team and doing things very differently and in the U.S. I know. Landon Donovan has been very critical of him, especially after he got left off. And even just last week, Bob Bradley took a shot at him uh, right after Klinsman was saying how good it was that Bob Bradley got hired by Swansea. And then Bob Bradley, there was a comment about how Klinsman was angling for his job. And so it seems like he really is not afraid of how he's perceived. But do you get a sense that that bothers him? Or does he just kind of move on and it doesn't really affect him too much? I mean, I think he's got a pretty thick skin yeah. all in all. I mean, uh, the criticism he takes, I'm not sure I could take it. Uh, but he <laughs> does, and he, he does it stoically. And um, I think he, I mean, as a professional soccer player, he got a lot of criticism as well. You have a bad game in Germany, you get you get criticized right away. So I think he's used to it. And he, you know, his attitude is take a look at it and just forget about it then. He doesn't take it too personally. But I think what, what does hurt him, though, is, is losing a game. Um, losing a game badly or losing an important mm-hmm. game, he takes that really hard. And I've had interviews lined up with him for a day or two after a game, and I don't hear from them for two or three days. <laughs> and, and and then all of a sudden he'll pop back up and say, "Yeah, let's meet at that cafe over there." So um, like last year, they they lost to Brazil really badly one night, and we had an interview set up for a day or two after that. And he didn't, he didn't write back, and I'm thinking, "Oh no, I've got to write this book, and we're supposed to meet on Thursday." And Here's already Thursday. I haven't heard from him. And then all of a sudden Thursday night he wrote, "Yeah, sorry, he just wasn't wasn't in the mood." But we'll meet tomorrow at, at the cafe. At so it, so um, I don't think he takes the the, the, the media criticism too hard. I mean, he doesn't. I don't think he likes it. I don't think he reads a lot of it to be honest. Um, uh, but I think losing losing games and losing games that should have been won or losing games to a big score. I think that I think he takes that pretty hard and pretty personally, um, as he did as a player. I mean, he told me when they got knocked out of the World Cup, Germany got knocked out of the World Cup in 94 and 98, and those were really good Germany teams that could have won the World Cup those two times. He, he just didn't talk to anybody for days, even weeks. He didn't talk to the media for weeks after the 94 World Cup. because That was a that team, he said, was better than the 90 team that won the World Cup. And it just they, they gave it away. They threw it away in the quarterfinals. And... Stuff like that really, really bugs him when, when people don't live up to their potential or, or teams don't live up to their potential. And um, I mean, that's one of the things I admire about him the most and I think is underappreciated about Klinsman is that as a player, he was a total tournament player. He seemed to raise his game for every tournament he played in. He was a, you know, a pretty good player for his clubs. But when the tournaments would come around, he always was one of the best players for, for West Germany and then Germany. He had six really, really good tournaments. He helped Germany win the World Cup in 90. He had a fantastic game against um, the Netherlands in the quarterfinals. It pretty much saved Germany's skin. And then um, and then they won the final. And then 96, he was captain of the Germany team that won the European Championship in England. And uh, he had a, had a fantastic tournament. And um, I think people don't really appreciate that he's somebody that was always able to raise his game for the big tournaments. And, you know, there's some really, really great soccer players around the world who never seem to do that. They kind of have mediocre tournaments or fade away and Klinsman 
six tournaments, and they were all really good. And that's the magic of Klinsman with the U.S. I think he gets the U.S. players to, to play, to punch above their weight in tournaments. And I think 2014, the whole world saw the U.S. as a, as a team to really watch out for. And I think the Copa America this summer that happened again, it was like, whoa, this is a pretty good team. You know, they find ways to win games or get the results they need, even though they don't have as many players um, as Mexico or whatever who are playing in, in Champions League teams. Uh, so I think that's one of the underrated um, successes of Klinsman is that he, he punched above his weight as a player and he gets his teams as a coach to play above their weights, to punch above their weights. Yeah, he seems like this unique combination of someone who's extremely intellectually curious, but also ridiculously competitive. And I actually remember, it's funny you mentioned the 94 World Cup, because I was a young kid, but and I, I remember actually watching the game when Germany lost to Bulgaria, and I can still picture him walking off the field, and he was, like, furious. <laughs> like, I, I can remember him, yeah. him fuming, and my, my, my memory, at least, I don't know if it's exactly Rex, it was a long time ago, but I just remember... Like he, I don't know if he grabbed, grabbed a shirt or he had his own shirt and he just like grabbed it with one hand and you could just tell he was really mad. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so then he becomes a pro and he's got all these different experiences and like he plays in Italy, France, and England and he's learning all other languages and other cultures and it's interesting to me that he he really sought it out like he wanted to play in other places not so much for money but just for the cultural experience, and one story that stood out, which I was wondering if you could just recap a little bit, is the time where he told the ref to not give his opponent the second yellow card. Um, I thought that was really kind of surprising. I hadn't heard that story before, and, and kind of amazing. It's hard to picture anybody doing that. <laughs> yeah, um, it, was a, it was a game early in his career. He hadn't quite made it to the West Germany national team yet, um, and it was a game against Bayern Munich at Stuttgart at home, and he scored a fa- fantastic bicycle kick goal earlier in the game. And Stuttgart were beating um, were beating Bayern, I think, two zero late in the game. And um, this one defender um, brought him down pretty hard late in the game, um, and it would have been a second yellow card. And um, Klinsmann didn't think it was that bad to warrant a second yellow card. And um, the ref was already had his already already had his hand in his pocket to give the guy the second yellow card. And Klinsman ran over and said, no, 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 it wasn't that bad, it wasn't that bad, don't do it. And nobody in the, in the crowd really understood what was going on. <laughs> there weren't really the close-ups of the replays in those days. So um, after the game, um, the ref went out of his way to tell the journalists what had happened. And then the Bayern manager, Uli Hoeneß, went over and thanked Klinsman for that. And all of, a sudden it came, all of a sudden it became a big story in the media, and Klinsman tries to downplay it now. He said it was no big deal. It wasn't that bad of a foul. And he didn't want the game to sort of end with Bayern um, down to 10 men for the last 10 minutes or whatever. And uh, just showed uh, what, a, what a sportsman he was. And that's why um, uh, about uh, five or six years later when he went to, to England to play for Tottenham, the English press had this idea that he was a diver, which really upset him. I mean, he, he played in... Um, in in France then, in, in Monaco, and uh, he, he was going to Tottenham, and the English press just started writing, writing about him being a diver, and it was because in the World Cup final in 90, he was tackled pretty hard by an Argentine guy who I think got a red card even, and Klinsman's uh, um, uh, ankle was bleeding after that, but the English press thought he was a diver because of it, and 
Um, he got a tip from a friend who had lived in England for a while that they just want to provoke you in England, so don't let them provoke you. So he went to the first press conference in England, and he started the press conference by saying, um, uh, excuse me, maybe you guys can tell me where the nearest diving school is. <laughs> and they and they loved him after that. They went, the press went from being hostile to loving him. And then, um, and then for Tottenham, he had a fantastic start, was scoring goals in every game pretty much, and the fans loved him. And he really feeds off the energy of the crowds, too. He loved playing in England. And one of the players of Tottenham urged him to do a mock dive after his first goal, so he did that. And the crowd went crazy. And then um, all of a sudden, all the kids in, in the Tottenham area were doing, were diving, were pretending to be divers as well. And then for his first home goal for Tottenham, the whole team agreed to go dive in the corner. And they all, all 11, even the goalie came running down the field, they all ran to the sideline and all did a dive. And the crowd went berserk, and he said that it was such an incredible moment. The goosebumps that he had from that was amazing. So um, he had he had a really fantastic time, and, and one of the it's in the book as well. But I asked him, you know, what's your favorite moment of all time? And he said, um, yeah, you know, a lot of people talk about trophies or titles you win, but for me, the most important, the most special moment was a player with a with FA Cup match um, at Liverpool, and he scored a late goal and and. Tottenham beat Liverpool two to one or three to two, and the, the Liverpool fans were standing and applauding for him and Tottenham, and he couldn't believe it. You know, they had just knocked Liverpool out of the FA Cup in the semi-final, and yet the Liverpool fans were so sportsmanlike that they were cheering for Klinsmann and Tottenham, and he just was blown away by that. And he said that is his favorite memory as a player. You know, I think that little anecdote alone says something about uh, what a how genuine Klinsman is. And how's it looking for him um, job security-wise? Like, Do you think is his job as U.S. coach um, safe through the next World Cup, assuming they qualify, or does it depend on how they do at the next World Cup? Uh, do you think he even wants to keep coaching, or do you think he might coach elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think he needs the money or worries too much about the money, but I think he has a pretty good contract through 2018, and okay. I think... I think he really wants to um, to to see this out through 2018, um, and uh, I think it's like a mission. I mean, everything for him is the World Cup, and everything leading up to the World Cup is just sort of a stepping stone and getting ready for the World Cup. I mean, he really looks. The World Cup is like 99% of what, what his job is all about, and everything in between is 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 nice and important. But it it, it all doesn't matter if you do poorly in the World Cup. So he's. He's going to judge himself harshly or, or positively on how well the U.S. does in the World Cup, and he set the goal of reaching the semifinal, which is really, really an uh, extremely lofty goal for the U.S. Um, so who knows if we'll get that far? But he, I think he really, he'll be really disappointed if the U.S. doesn't have a, a good World Cup in Russia. And um, as far as job security, I mean, I, I don't really know what goes on inside U.S. soccer, but I think um, I think they've got a, a real gem there, and I think it would be not a very prudent move to to pull the plug prematurely on that. And I think I think I think people who follow the U.S. team closely they they must see that there's something happening there. There's some really positive things happening. I mean, the Copa America wasn't a fluke. They played some really good soccer against some really really good teams, and um, maybe some of those critics in America didn't appreciate, it, but I think around the world. Uh, the U.S. won a lot of respect for doing so well in the Copa with a team with players. With, with there's only one player on that team who plays in the Champions League. You know, and Mexico had seven players in the Champions League. So to to make it to the semifinal and to play some really good soccer, I think uh, shows people who follow soccer around the world. Hey, 
he's making he's doing a lot with with a team without without a lot of talented, experienced players. And um, yeah, that's his goal. And I think um, who knows? You know, they can have a bad couple of results and maybe not qualify for the World Cup, which would be a real disaster. And who, who knows? Maybe he won't want to stay around longer himself. But I think he's really committed to to seeing the job through to the World Cup. Um, some British journalists, uh, English journalists, were calling me up in the summer asking me as, as his sort of an official biographer if he would take these take the England job or these other jobs that were popping up in England. I said, I don't think so. I think he's never broken a contract. I think he, he likes coaching the U.S. I think he he's not really doing it for the money. He's doing it for the challenge, and he really wants to make the U.S. a soccer power. And the job's not done yet. I mean, he's been there since 2011, and he wants to see it through to the next World Cup, to the end of the cycle, and that's really important to him. And um, and to be honest with you, I think after, after he ends his time with the U.S., whatever that might be, I don't think he'll take a job right away. After the Germany job, he spent a year analyzing and cataloging what went well with Germany and what didn't go so well, and and then learning Spanish as well. So I don't think he's going to be in any rush for another job, and I would be really surprised to see him um, go from the U.S. to another job right away. I think there'll always be a period of six months or a year where he just decompresses and, and tries to figure out what went well and what didn't go well. So. And I told this to English journalists, but they still went ahead and were writing these really speculative stories <laughs> that he was in, in the frame and being interviewed, and he wasn't. And then I even, you know, he then told me, no, I never had an interview, I never talked to England. And I told these English journalists that, and they said, oh, that's really interesting, but we already wrote he did, so we can't we can't change that now. And I was like, wow. So, but the, it was interesting, the U.S. media, I think, um, on that story um, had it the right way that Klinsman had never talked to them and hadn't really, he did not seek the job either. I mean, uh, I think he was more amused by the whole thing that people were saying he was talking to because he wasn't. He was committed to sticking sticking to the U.S. And um, I think it's a good thing for the U.S. I think he's really done some, some good things and helped some players develop really nicely. And there are a lot of things you talk about regarding what the U.S. needs to fix in order to be a soccer superpower or win the World Cup. Um, what do you think is the most important or number one thing? Well, I, I mean, Clemson talks about this as well, but I think it's really important for top American players to want to play in Europe and want to succeed in Europe mm -hmm. um, and top clubs get to the Champions League, you know, climb the pyramid all the way to the top. The top Argentinian players or the top Brazilians, they all want to go to Europe. Everywhere in the world, the top Asian players, they all want to play in Europe. It's like the best German basketball players want to go to the NBA and the best German football players want to go to the NFL. It's just the most logical thing. But in America, if the best American soccer players are going to stay in the MLS, I think it's going to be really tough for the U.S. to get to the next level and, and make it to the to the semifinals or the final of a World Cup. And it's not, it's not the money in Europe. It's not whatever. It's just getting used to playing top level against the best players of the world all the time. And Klinsman says this as well. He says, you know, suddenly if you're in a World Cup quarterfinal or semifinal and you're lining up against all these big names and you've been playing against them for the last three or four years in the Champions League, you're not going to be intimidated. But if you've never seen them before except on TV, you're going to be intimidated. He said he would be intimidated as well. So I think that's really, really important that Americans realize the MLS is definitely getting better, but it's not really even the top 10 or top 15 probably. And if the United States wants to be a top two or three or top four or five world power in soccer, they've got to have quite a few members of their team who are making their money on clubs in Europe. 
Another another wishful thing would be to have promotion and relegation in the U.S. I know that's anathema to a lot of the franchises in America. I can understand it, but that's the rest. That's the way the rest of the world plays soccer. That players on the on the bottom bottom of the table clubs, they have this incredible uh, relegation fight every spring, and it's some of the most exciting soccer you can see, where players are going all out and fighting fighting to the death almost to keep their club from being relegated. And in the U.S., if you look at teams at the bottom of the table, they're just playing out the season. So I I just kind of wonder how is that going to work? How is the U.S. going to keep developing? Lots of really good players, not just five or ten or eleven or fifteen, but you know, forty or fifty players who can step into a World Cup and do really well. If you look at Germany now, Germany, a player gets injured, there's five or six more people who can step in and do the job just as well. There's such a such a luxury that the Germany coach has of so many talented players, and and part of the reason is is promotion relegation. That's just the way it is in the rest of the world. So if the U.S. could ever get promotion relegation and if the top American players, not all of them, but, you know, maybe six, seven, eight, ten, twelve top American players were playing in England, Spain, Germany, or Italy, I think the U.S. could really make a big jump up uh, in the next World Cup and the World Cups to come. Yeah, relegation is interesting. Um, I mean, it, it definitely is, probably can be cruel for the, the fans, but um, I think it's good for the sport. Like, I'm a Sixers fan, basketball, and they uh, have basically intentionally been historically bad for the last three seasons, and, and so as a fan, it, it's kind of terrible, <laughs> and, and and I think it's just good for the sport if you have teams at the bottom who are who are incentivized to win. Um, when you don't have that, then it's a, a big problem, and so um, in that sense, I think the relegation is really, really good, and one thing that came up a lot, too, and the book that I thought was a good point was just the the time spent playing the game like as, as kids. And my perception of kids in other countries is that they play in the streets for hours a day. And, and here in the U.S., there's all kinds of teams and leagues and structure. But when I drive by soccer fields, I don't ever see kids just playing for fun. And maybe it's the combination of the rise of suburbs or the lack of close-knit neighborhoods, but, um, or maybe the rise of video games. But it seems like, to me, an unstructured play for hours and hours is the best way for kids to get really good at something yeah, I mean, Clemson points out, and I didn't really know this that well either. I mean, when I first came to Europe 25 years ago, I would watch American sports mostly, and it was a it was a process. It took about 10 years for me to really start enjoying the finer points of soccer and the nuances of soccer. And now I don't really like watching American sports because it's comparatively boring, but <laughs> soccer is just really exciting. And, um, and I think soccer in so many countries around the world is sort of a, a working-class sport or a middle-class sport or a lower-middle-class sport where kids... It's, it's their way, not, maybe not out of the ghetto, but it's their way up in the world to play soccer. And so they go out and they play soccer in the backyard or at the park just five or six hours a day. And just They just keep kicking a ball around. And most of them never really make it very far. They never make any money on it. But there's just so much. They're just playing all the time. And they just they can handle the ball so well. Their instincts develop so well at a really young age. Um, I mean, Clemson compares it a bit to way the way Americans in inner cities play basketball. It's, and I think it is similar. It's just they're there playing all the time. And most of them aren't going to make it to college or the NBA, but they're just playing the game because they love playing the game. And that's the way it is around the world with soccer. It's just middle class, lower middle class kids just playing soccer all the time and breathing soccer. And, and in America, it's really interesting that soccer is sort of more of a, 
upper class board or upper middle class board is really expensive. Just the just the fees, the cost of playing soccer in America are staggering. I mean, I guess it's a couple thousand dollars a year, whereas in Germany you can play in a club for a hundred euros, a hundred dollars a year. So all these things, all these little things, I think really add up, and and on the surface make it difficult for the U.S. to produce really World Cup winning teams. But on the other hand, the U.S. has some really huge advantages, like really outstanding science and and top coaching and. Um, sports and I, I've been to Europe I, I've gotten a tour of um, San Siro in Milan but I've never actually been to a game I, I was curious if you could paint a picture for me of going to a Bundesliga game and just how it compares to an American sporting event yeah I mean first of all it's pretty much a 90 minute game it's over after 90 minutes plus the 15 minutes intermission and you can set your watch almost every game in Germany ends at about quarter after five on Saturday and um, yeah it's, it's a it's good good and good and exciting here in the stadiums, the crowd, a lot of people stand the whole time, and and they sing and they cheer, and um, and they understand the finer points of the game. And if they, um, I mean, a lot of games don't have a lot of goals, but if they see somebody's really out there hustling and fighting for every loose ball, and and you know, really working hard to get a corner kick out of something that could have just been out of bounds, and they appreciate it. So they they really understand the finer points. So you know, I've gone to some MLS games once in a while. Uh, it was at a Galaxy game last fall, and it was it was a pretty decent game. It was zero zero Montreal against the Galaxy, and it, the last five minutes got really good. Both teams really wanted to get a result, and they started really going all out. And it was Steve Gerrard with the Galaxy, and the game was it was a fantastic five final five or ten minutes. But half the crowd got up and started going going for the parking lot. I was like, "What? Give me a break! You can't! You got to be kidding me!" I mean, okay, it's zero zero. It might end zero zero, but this is the best part of the game. You know, they're tired after going 70, 80 minutes. Now, hang on for five more minutes or eight more minutes. It's going to be worth it. And even if it ended zero zero, which it ended zero zero, the best five minutes were the last five minutes. And I mean, maybe a third of the crowd got up and left. And I thought, wow. And in Germany, that wouldn't happen. In Germany, they would. They would sense that something magical is happening. I mean, if the result was 4-0 and both teams are just kicking the ball around, sure, the, the crowd will get up and leave early. But the crowd um, just sense what's happening. The same with an American football. If Germans watch an American football game in Germany, they don't really understand the finer points of what's going on in the strategy. And, and American crowds do really appreciate the finer points of a, of a good football game, which is, which is also fun to be part of, definitely. 
Um, and, and writing about soccer, I've always found it really difficult. I've written about basketball and football and baseball, but writing about soccer is is um, so much more subjective. And even for a news agency, you'll write your story about the game, and you look at what other people wrote the next day, and there's 20 different takes on the game. It's so much more of a like a piece of art in a way, what happened there. And um, none of the stories are wrong. They're just different sort of takes on who did what and what was the turning point of the game maybe or what happened. And it, it's just so different. Soccer is just so different than so many other sports in America. And that's one of the other things that Klinsman is up against as well, that a lot of American sports writers um, cover a lot of different sports. Whereas in, in Europe, soccer is 80% of the sports section is soccer. And most of the sports writers are soccer writers, so it's a, it's just a different level of intensity about what they're writing about, and they're they're critical too, definitely. But but soccer soccer sports writers in in Europe tend to tend to really zero in what the weaknesses of the team, and um, sometimes some I read some of the criticism of of the U.S. team or Klinsman and the U.S. papers, and some of it's spot on, some of it's absolutely right, but some of it just really seems off the wall. It's like and he says this too. Sometimes they just don't get it. They don't really uh, understand. And he gets bashed from that. He gave a Washington Post interview a year or so ago, and he said, "We just need to improve the education and the knowledge about soccer." And he was bashed for that. They, people felt like he was he was talking down to him, and it's not really what he meant. I, I think I know what he meant. He just thought if there were more soccer specialists in America, people who write about only about soccer, or mostly about soccer there might be a little bit more understanding of some of these little finer points and when things go wrong or when things aren't really going wrong and they just had one bad game or whatever and they don't they don't suddenly get so worked up about it. So it's a, it's a development. I mean, um, soccer is still a pretty young sport in America in a lot of ways. and Maybe in five or ten years, um, it'll be a completely different situation. There'll be a lot more knowledge and enthusiasm and understanding about the finer points of soccer. It took me a long time. My God, I've been in Europe for much 30 <laughs> years, and it took me probably 10 or 15 years to really understand why people even watch the game. It really I didn't like it at first. I thought, what a dull game. But I've, I've learned, believe it or not, even a 0-0 game can be really exciting. Mm-hmm. But I never thought I would say that, but some, there are some 0-0 games where the underdog just manages to hold on for a point, and you're like, wow, that was a great game. And my last question for you, um, what do um, most Germans or the, the average German um, think of what's going on in our presidential election? <laughs> um, that has nothing to do with soccer, but yeah. um, yeah, they're, they're just sort of uh, amazed and bewildered that <laughs> Trump just keeps getting through and they keep asking me how to try to explain this Trump phenomenon and I can't really explain it. And... Um, Europe, it just a lot of it has to do with the Republican Party having some some difficult times right now and imploding and not really sure where it's going and that it scares Germans and Europeans because they look to America for so many things. They look to America for leadership and and um, especially in crises and things. And if if America is so is so divided and struggling itself, that worries them a bit. Um, yeah, they, I mean. They're following the polls closely. They know what's going on, and um, they cover the U.S. race really closely. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time. It was fun. I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm happy with the book, and I think Klinsman liked it as well. And uh, he said his wife even learned stuff about him, and she didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I obviously think he's a prettier guy, and I think he's doing good things. So, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, my main goal is not to make any money, or really, at this point, just yeah. hope, hope that people will understand what he's doing. And yeah. a German version of the book is coming out now, and I, I hope in Germany I'll kind of put, especially the Bayern Munich stuff. I think that'll sort of set the record straight that he actually did some good things at Bayern Munich and mm. um, and also he, I think the German coach now Löw and the players they give Klinsmann a lot of credit for Germany having such a good run in the last decade but I think the German media doesn't really because there's some German newspapers like Bill that just don't like him and they, mm. so anyway my, my main object is to sort of set the record straight and, and help Americans as well learn more about what he's trying to do and not bash him for things that seem a little bit unusual. So. Yeah. And I'm glad you liked the book. That's yeah, I did. Great. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, well, have a good okay. night. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye. Right, bye. So thanks to Eric for talking to me today. Uh, I love talking soccer, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and once again, the book is Soccer Without Borders, Jurgen Klinsmann Coaching the U.S. Men's National Soccer Team and the Quest for the World Cup. Go buy it and read it today. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at sweeto37 at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Project MacGyver, and my blog is themacgyverproject.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening.